I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. When Jake Duggan was 14, his parents sent him to sleepaway camp. And like anyone who spent time sleeping outdoors knows, sometimes when you camp, it rains. There was a point that I realized when you're in the woods uh, for long periods of time and it's raining, there's a point where you get so wet that you can't get any more wet and you just kind of have to accept it. Jake says on this particular trip, it rained nonstop from Thursday through Saturday. Then, just as he and his fellow rain-soaked campers were setting up for Saturday's dinner, things started to clear. That's when it happened. I looked, and I saw the sun setting and the clouds kind of clearing. And this sounds like I'm making it up, but I'm not. I turn around, there's this giant, giant rainbow, the biggest rainbow I've ever seen. And then a huge bald eagle flew right through the rainbow. I grabbed one of the guides, and I was like, you know, this is the first time I'm actually, like, feeling happy and in years. For Jake, being happy was a big deal because this wasn't an ordinary summer camp and Jake wasn't an ordinary camper. He liked the wilderness. He loved hiking. He loved being outside. This is Jake's mom, Erin Duggan. She says that when Jake was growing up, he would spend a lot of time outside with his dad, Tim. When he was young, they started uh, hiking the 4,000-footers in New Hampshire. Tim calls Jake his ski buddy and says they would ski together every weekend, starting when Jake was five. To this day, he is the best skier I've ever skied with. He's a, he's a natural, um, incredibly gifted skier. As Jake got older, he started skiing more with his friends and less with his dad. Then, the winter of his eighth grade year, things took a turn. Jake didn't want to ski with his dad or his friends anymore. A few months later, he was spending all his time alone, locked in his room. For like one whole summer, the summer after eighth grade, that's all I did. You know, it would be days that I wouldn't go outside because, you know, it was just very, it was tough. We tried different medications, which for Jake didn't work. They made him worse. And we did so many different therapies. He was in therapy, different um, groups and individual therapy at McLean's Hospital in Belmont. We were going to family therapy. Um, yeah, whatever anybody would tell us to do, we would do. 
And in February of 2013, everything came to a head. We were out at the mountain, and he had, the night before, just had a, a really bad night. Ran away for a little while. Um, and then the next morning, we were skiing, and he came down from the mountain and just said to me, it's not working. I really need some help. After the trip, Jake was hospitalized. A therapist told the Duggins, you're not a hospital. You can't keep him safe. A consultant offered the family a solution they hadn't tried yet, wilderness therapy. They were pointed to a program a few hours north in Maine called Summit Achievement. Part of being so depressed was being very suicidal. I was in such a horrible place that, you know, I just didn't want to continue on. And, you know, I truly don't think I would be here if I didn't go to Summit. Now, I think we've all experienced how being outside can be calming, centering, maybe even healing. And Jake's story seems to bear that out. But does that healing power have a place in mental health care? Well, it's complicated. This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. Today, producer Jimmy Gutierrez looks into the field of wilderness therapy to find out if getting out into wild spaces helps to reset the brain or if it's an industry that's just too wild to be trusted. Living up here, I've lived up here uh, in the White Mountains in New Hampshire since the 80s. People are starving for more time outdoors. I, I actually have. We're starting our trek into the field of wilderness therapy at the camp where Jake had his breakthrough, Summit Achievement. And that's Will White, one of its co founders. How much acreage is actually. 50 acres here. The campus is nestled in the White Mountain National Forest and is the stuff brochures are made of. Views of snow-capped mountains, rising tree lines, and green everything. This is where our food comes from. This is like heaven to me. You have Brussels sprouts, onions, eggplants, sweet peppers, cucumbers, hot peppers. Wow. Down the road from the garden is a clearing about the size of a football field. That's where most of the action happens. This is our original cabin. On one side is the main lodge with dated furniture and a collection of young, earnest-faced outdoorsy types. Across from the lodge is a row of four smaller cabins used for housing. Next to that is Summit's academic building with some cramped classrooms. So when we started, we didn't have any the school building or those two cabins we had the original cabin. Summit Achievement got its start 20 years ago in the mid-90s. It's considered a wilderness therapy camp, which means it's more like counseling in nature than a summer camp with bonfires and s'mores. Not that bonfires and s'mores don't happen. Teens spend Monday through Wednesday on campus attending classes. The rest of the week is spent in the backcountry camping with lots of therapy along the way. There's a variety of backgrounds at Summit, including teachers, therapists, licensed social workers, and a labradoodle named Baxter. Many of the people who started these programs were working in traditional environments. I was an adolescent clinician working 
in, I've worked at mental health centers, I've worked at boarding schools, I've worked at public schools, and um, those environments were not as powerful as the one here. You don't have to rock Patagonia in a man bun to know that some people find hospitals and schools as pretty oppressive places. And for Will, who spent all of his childhood summers at camp, it's not all that surprising he was drawn to the natural world's potential for treatment. You go back to biblical times, or even before, indigenous people, the adolescent, went on vision quests. Jesus, when he was young, supposedly went to 30 days in the desert. It's old. This is not a new thing. I mean, the roots of it, just in New Hampshire alone, go back to the 1800s. That's when Camp Chakora opened up on Squam Lake. The founder, Ernest Balsh, said, and I'm paraphrasing here, Rich kids are spoiled and lazy, and nature can fix them. You interview parents who send their kids to summer camp, and all of them, will, most of them will say, wow, he really or she really grew up from that experience. This is the same idea. It's much more intense and more therapeutically focused. And for Jake, that combination of focus therapy and time outdoors worked. But we've got to take a minute and talk about just how Jake got better. Was it teamwork? Was it the top-of-the-line counseling? Eagles soaring through rainbows? The thing is, no one really knows, not even the researchers. When it comes to the field of wilderness therapy, the science is still out on exactly how and why some kids get better in nature. There's even a name for it. Experts call it the black box. And while Jake emerged from that black box seemingly healed, not all wilderness therapy camps are created equal. Erica was just very bright, very talented, and, you know, I know everybody says that about their kid, but she really was just an exceptional kid. Um, We were all just kind of awed by her a lot of the time. When Cynthia Clark Harvey talks about her oldest Erica, she sounds exceptional. Award-winning artist, competitive springboard diver, weekly volunteer at the local animal shelter for years, and popular. You know, just a really great kid, and um, things just really seemed to, you know, turn on a dime in the eighth grade. The first sign of distress came in 2000 when Cynthia and her husband Michael found out that Eric had begun cutting. Within a week, they were in front of a psychologist. She was hospitalized just before her 15th birthday um, for suicidal ideation, suicidal thoughts, suicidal behavior. Over the next few months, Cynthia and Michael tried everything. They brought her to family therapy, a psychiatrist, entered her into a drug treatment program. Erica began to show signs of mild improvement. Then, a consultant nudged them to consider wilderness therapy. Cynthia dove into any published material she could find, calling it a very rudimentary internet search. We kind of called it down to three or four places. I think I talked to at least two of them, and then we decided to um, send her to Catherine Freer. One year ago, our family was in ruins and my heart was breaking. Today, life for all of us has resumed with such a bright future. Without the Catherine Freer program, I wouldn't have had the motivation to drop my addiction to drugs and alcohol and return to values that I once knew were important. The Catherine Freer program was based in Nevada, a short plane ride from the family's home in Phoenix. 
The staff advised Cynthia and Michael not to tell Erica about the camp with fear she'd run away, something she'd never done before. So they said they were taking a family trip to Lake Tahoe. And when we pulled into the parking lot, we told Erica. And we had enlisted our younger daughters and huge regrets that we put that burden on her Mm. at 13. The decision to lie to Erica may sound outrageous, but the truth is this is a common practice for a number of camps, with some going even further suggesting the hiring of what's known as escort services. These are companies that show up at the family's home and physically remove kids from their beds in the middle of the night. In hindsight, this should have been a red flag, but Cynthia and Michael believe they were trusting professionals. We got to the parking lot and um, we told her that she was going on a wilderness therapy program and she was distraught, distraught, hysterical. The Harveys left heartbroken, but hopeful. And um, that was the last we saw her. Good morning. My name is Cynthia Clark Harvey. On May 27, 2002, the first full day of Erica's Nevada wilderness trek, Freer's trusted team mistook a dire medical emergency for teenage belligerence, and Erica died that afternoon of heat stroke with dehydration. One day after the Harveys dropped off their distraught 15-year-old daughter at Freer's, she and fellow campers were taken on an hours-long wilderness hike. Erica was pushed past exhaustion. She collapsed multiple times during the hike, and on her last fall, she collapsed face first, off the trail, into rocks and scrub brush. She laid there for almost an hour as staff looked on. And as Cynthia tells it, that was just the beginning of Catherine Freer's failures. They contacted their on-call medical doctor. But the doctor turned out not to be a doctor at all, rather a physician's assistant located in Oregon. They called the local authorities to ask for help and a helicopter to get Erica to a hospital. But they didn't know where they were. The helicopter took hours to arrive because contrary to the advanced planning that we were told to expect, no arrangements with local authorities had been made, nor was any sort of trip plan filed. We also found out that the EMT on the team was on his very first trek and had only recently completed coursework in WEMT and had never experienced a real medical emergency before. While it may be comforting to think of Catherine Freer as an outlier or a bad apple, the camp proved to be more of the rule than the exception. I want to welcome everybody to today's hearing on on cases of child neglect and abuse at private residential treatment facilities. In 2007, then-California State Rep. George Miller called for a federal investigation into abusive youth programs at residential treatment facilities. These are places where kids live on-site for therapy or rehab. And we're talking about residential treatment facilities because most wilderness therapy camps fall under that umbrella. And this investigation included a number of those camps. At a hearing in the House, legislators, advocators for and against the industry, and parents testified. Cynthia Clark Harvey was among those who spoke. Our story is a personal tragedy, but please remember that for each family that has suffered the ultimate damage, the death of a beloved child, 
there are perhaps thousands of others who have suffered physical or psychological neglect and abuse. The government's investigation unearthed thousands of cases of abuse. Erica was one of three teenagers who died at Catherine Freer over a 10-month span. And while there aren't hard numbers for the exact number of teen deaths at residential treatment programs, one site called Fornitz has been tracking these incidents and put the number of teen deaths since 2010 at 28. Sources of these allegations include HHS, state agencies, the Internet, and pending and closed civil and criminal lawsuits. As Special Investigator Greg Cutts described, the conditions at some facilities sounded more like Abu Ghraib than summer camp. Examples of abuse include youth being forced to eat their own vomit, denied adequate food, being forced to lie in urine or feces, being kicked, beaten, and thrown to the ground, and being forced to use a toothbrush to clean a toilet, and then forced to use that toothbrush on their teeth. The investigation found that many of these programs operate in a black box, with little oversight and varying levels of state regulation, which means the quality of residential treatment facilities and wilderness therapy camps varies wildly. On one end, you have places like Summit Achievement, where nature is a kind of healer. And on the other end, you have programs where the natural world is used to punish, like boot camp models promoted on daytime talk shows. You know, babysitter or boot camp? What do you think, guys? There are also court-ordered models where a harsh wilderness experience is a stand-in for a detention facility. Think juvie in the woods with drill sergeants. And here, another troubling reality emerges. There's a wide racial gap between the higher-end wilderness therapy programs, like Summit Achievement, where three-quarters of the clients are white males, and the harsh adjudicated programs, where that same demographic makes up less than half the population. And then there's the money. Many of the abuses uncovered in the federal investigation happened at private residential treatment programs, where profits were made off of, among other things, inadequate staffing, shoddy facilities, and preying on desperate parents. As we will hear today, a number of these programs use deceptive marketing practices to appeal to parents. They claim to be subject of independent inspections that never happen. They claim to offer services that don't, like schooling and transferable education credits. They assure parents that health insurance will cover the cost of their service, when in reality, it won't. But when you're a desperate parent with a child in crisis, what wouldn't you be willing to do to save them? Reaching into that black box is tempting. It was for Dinesha Lax, who back in 2012, found herself in a similar situation to Jake and Erica's folks. Well, I am a mother from Indiana and some hot water for her unorthodox punishment for her son. She forced him to wear a sign detailing his crimes. And they made it seem like we put him out on a busy street. Instead, he was in our front yard. And that sign Dinesha had her 14-year-old son Alante wear red? I lie, I steal, I break the law. A wave of online commentary followed the news. Some people called it creative parenting, others calling it cruel and unusual. Then... The story went national, and Dinesha had a choice to make. Outside In will be back after a short break.
This is Outside In. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. And today, producer Jimmy Gutierrez is looking at the field of wilderness therapy to find out if getting out into wild spaces helps to reset the brain or if it's an industry that's just too wild to be trusted. And he's found out that part of what makes wilderness therapy so wild is that the science is still out on how and why it works for some teens. Yeah, and it remains part of a largely unregulated field where some programs are legit, some are understaffed, some are abusive, and many are last resorts for parents in desperate situations, which brings us back to Dinesha Lax, who in 2012 put a sign around the neck of her son Alante and found herself in the national spotlight. I'm interested in making a difference. We're going to tell the human story. I'm Dr. Drew Pinsky. Starting September 19th... In 2011, popular radio show personality Dr. Drew Pinsky hosted a brief daytime show called Life Changers. One episode was centered around Dinesha and her son. Well, there's no question Alante's involved in some behaviors that are scary. And I don't think that he wants to go down the path where that's going to lead. One of Pinsky's guests that day was Ephraim Hanks, clinical director at Diamond Ranch Academy, a boarding school in Utah that bills itself as, quote, the top school for troubled teens. That day, Diamond Ranch was there with an offer, a year's free tuition for Alante. This is all new to us. What's happened today has all been new to us. Me publicizing him like that has all been new. I'm willing to do it if I don't see a change in the next couple months. But let me just say, Mom, to me and to I'm sure people watching at home, this is shocking. Yes, it is. It's shocking that you won't do this. I mean, it's a doctor recommending it. It's a free service. I understand it's hard, but I deal with this all the time where people come to me and go, I'm willing to do anything. I'm willing to do anything. I go, here is exactly what you need to do. And they go, okay, anything but that. With the audience applauding, Dinesha is sitting there exhausted. Her eyes are red and cheeks wet with tears. She wipes her face clean and looks over to her son sitting by her side. If I let you go, do you feel like I'm walking away from you? Alante nods. Okay, then. That's it right there. It's nothing to talk about. Dinesha didn't send Alante away. Really being honest with you, I didn't think sending him with two complete strangers who don't know anything about him was helping him. After the show, Diamond Ranch upped their offer, saying they'd take Alante for up to two years. So when Dinesha got back to her hotel, she did what any curious person would do. She Googled him. I started reading how one kid had died there and how one kid was talking about how their shoes and their clothes was taken from them and how they were ridiculed by the staff and couldn't have outside function with their family or anything. Dinesha found a survivor's page from past students. Then I read about the little boy who actually died at Diamond Ranch and um, he had been telling them that he was sick all day and he vomited so long until where he died off his own vomit. The year after Dinesha refused their offer, a camper committed suicide while attending Diamond Ranch. Alante would have been on campus for that one. This past February, a staffer was charged and sentenced to 22 and a half years in federal prison for producing child pornography. Diamond Ranch didn't return our calls requesting comment, but a court of law has never found them guilty of abuses, and their website is filled with positive testimonials. But in that moment, none of that mattered to Dinesha. She read the negative reviews and was confident she had made the right decision. But she wasn't out of the woods because her son was still suffering. A lot of times parents feel like when somebody offers somewhere for them to go, that's the right way to go to. I can't really say it's that because even after the Dr. Drew show, I wanted to get going to placement. 
for a total of 14 months. And what it did for Alante was actually make his life worse. Alante's 19 now and was just released from the hospital after spending six days on life support. Within the last few years of him becoming a dog, we have had two suicide attempts. It's been a rough battle. So why hasn't Alante had his breakthrough? Has he just not found the right treatment facility? Would a natural setting help? Would it have made a difference if he had gone to some achievement like Jake? Or is it a question without an answer? What can be said is that this industry is sprawling and the kids are complex, each one dealing with a distinct set of issues, different family systems, different financial backgrounds, and different diagnoses. If your child has a specific problem, you want to get help for that specific problem. Maya Salovitz is the author of Help at Any Cost, How the Troubled Teen Industry Cons Parents and Hurts Kids. In the book, she lays out how the boot camps, the academies, and even some wilderness therapy camps are all part of the quote-unquote troubled teen industry. And she says troubled teen is a problematic term because it reveals a lot about how the industry is structured, but it tells us nothing about the issues these kids are dealing with. Given how much this stuff costs, imagine how much individualized therapy you could have at home. Basically, if you are going to work with troubled teens that genuinely need residential care, there is absolutely no way to make profit if you hire professionals that are appropriately qualified. Her reporting was cited in the government's 2007 investigation. The research is very clear across the mental health spectrum that residential treatment should be limited to the most severe cases and limited to the shortest possible period of time. We know that if you isolate vulnerable people, people with disabilities, children, away from society, you will end up with institutional abuse. And so the only reason to use a residential facility is when you have no alternative. Let's put aside the terrible camps and let's maybe not even think about camps at all. Is there restorative property in nature? Yes, there absolutely is a restorative property in nature. And I hate that people have misused nature in this way because I don't want to be seen as saying, oh, you know, it's not great to be out in the woods and enjoying the trees and, you know, everything like that. I mean, there is decent data showing that exposure to greenery is good for you. Simply going for a walk in the woods is good for you. You know, nature can be remarkably healing. But that's not to say she's ready to endorse any camp just yet. There's still too many blind spots with too much at stake. If you could come up with a way to create a therapeutic environment in the wilderness that did not have those issues, I would be willing to uh, reconsider. But in the current unregulated environment where you can't have unannounced inspections and where there isn't um, enough people to even do that oversight, even in the states that do have some regulation, you're going to end up with the same problems repeating themselves. So here's a question. If you're a desperate family trying to save your kid, is it worth the risk? Would you roll the dice with the wilderness therapy camp? Is the restorative power of what's ever in that black box real? I got this tattoo in January. Remember Jake Duggan? The idea came to me about halfway through my time at Summit. Um, And Summit's logo is a compass, and I feel like it kind of not to be punny, but it kind of encompasses everything that people do at Summit, the the wilderness and learning and kind of finding your direction and stuff like that. 
Whatever's in that black box, it did work for Jake. The next step is understanding why. And what would it take to pry open the entire industry? So our four main questions are, is it safe? Is it effective? Is it worth the cost? Um, what's the fourth? How do you tell a good program from yeah. a bad program? How do you tell a good That's program? what doctors Mike Gass and Anita Tucker are working on. They're professors at the University of New Hampshire. They're also the leadership behind the Outdoor Behavioral Healthcare Center, which is working to improve the field from within. They see camps like Summit as a baseline, certified therapists and staff, integrating best practices, and wonderful hot peppers. They also say things have changed since the government's investigation a decade ago. At this point, they're confident that wilderness therapy is as effective as other forms of treatment, even if they can't say why. We really don't know what concepts are responsible for producing the types of changes we're seeing. We have a good idea that there's a lot of work about the group work that's done and a lot of work that the adventure brings. But then we kind of go, is it nature? Is it exercise? Is it good food? Is it mindfulness? Is it mindfulness? But for families like the Duggins, any positive result is a welcomed one. These are not kids that this is the first place they go. They've tried traditional therapy, they've tried alternative therapies, they've tried everything, and they're like grasping at the last straw, and that happens to be wilderness therapy. So the kids that we see tend to be pretty desperate and pretty complex. Yeah, I think maybe we finally just gave in. Jake's mom again, Aaron on Jake's tattoo. Because he kept asking and kept asking and really would draw and redraw. And finally, Tim and I talked about it. And we were like, well, you know, it's, it's not a passing thing. If you had told us five years ago that, you know, be, when your kid turns 17, you're going to be taking him to Vermont to get a tattoo, we, we would have just laughed in your face. Right. And then having been what we've been through and seeing the way that he's done the work that he's needed to do, a tattoo is such a trivial thing in life compared to, you know, where he's been and, and where he's come back from. The tattoo is on his left arm, right above the sleeve line. I originally wanted it right uh, on my wrist, um, but then I realized that I was 16 and I might regret that when I'm older. And so, like, th this is kind of a small t-shirt. A normal t-shirt goes down to there and it covers it and you can't even tell. Yeah. I like this t-shirt because it shows a little bit of it. <laughs> Jake said he wanted the tattoo, so he'd always have a piece of Summit with him. He's also hoping it'll be a part of his future. I want to be either a therapist or psychiatrist or work at a program. My goal is to just help people when I'm older, help people that were in similar situations to what I was in. It's important to remember that each kid has their own inner mystery they're desperately trying to figure out and unlock. But until wilderness therapy manages to unpack that black box, figure out how best to harness the benefits of being outside and how it helps these kids, in today's landscape of absent oversight, it'll be desperate parents on their own trying to make sense of things. Outside In was produced this week by Jimmy Gutierrez with help from me, Sam Evans-Brown, Maureen McMurray, Taylor Quimby, Logan Shannon, Molly Donahue, and Hannah McCarthy. Special thanks to Dr. Nikki Bush of ASTART, alpinist Grant Statham, and outdoor risk management expert Ross Kluche. 
If you want to see a photo of Jake's wilderness therapy-inspired tattoo, visit our website, outsideinradio.org. We featured music today by Sometimes Why, Mont Plaisir, Blue Dot Sessions, Pottington Bear, and Uncanny Valleys. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Thank you.